Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Wolverine from Uncanny X-Men number 205, a story titled Wounded Wolf. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Andrew Deman. Welcome back, Andrew. Thank you for having me back. And I am very excited to talk about this particular comic book issue. It is yeah. seasonally appropriate for us to tackle <laughs> Uncanny X-Men number 205. This has a story by Chris Claremont and Barry Windsor-Smith with a script by Claremont, art, inking, and color by Windsor-Smith. And it has a cover date of May 1986, but it is set during Christmas time. So, <laughs> and, and when I was looking up some information, it said it was released in February. So just everything was a little bit off, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it tells the story of a group of Wolverine's enemies, led by a woman calling herself Lady Deathstrike, becoming cyborgs so that they can attack and kill Wolverine. I will let you guess whether they succeed. Uh, <laughs> with the help of a child named Katie Power, uh, who has superpowers, Wolverine is able to hide long enough to recover from their initial attack and then try to fight them off. Andrew, one reason why we asked you to come on the podcast right now and talk about an X-Men issue is that you are a noted expert, expert on the X-Men, and you have a book that has just come out. Would you like to plug your book real quick for our listeners? Sure. Um, uh, my, my book is The Claremont Run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men, which actually came out the day we're recording this, which is very cool. Very exciting time then for for you. It's always, uh, uh, you know, just a, a, like a little burst of energy when when a publication actually makes it all the way yeah. through yeah. the process. Um, <laughs> for listeners who who don't know, uh, writing the book uh, sometimes that is done so far in advance of actually seeing the thing. <laughs> it's a gauntlet. Yeah, yeah. Peer review. You always get got to get past peer reviewer number two. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a story, too, about peer review. <laughs> uh, but, but that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we are talking about the X-Men, and in particular, Wolverine. So I asked if there was any particular uh, you know, topic you wanted to cover. I mean, I mostly wanted you to come on, because I knew you had a book coming out. But was there anything that you wanted to talk about? And you gave me a few issues uh, that you thought would work. And um, this issue, Wounded Wolf, stood out to me because somehow in over 450 episodes of the protagonist podcast. We've never done an episode focusing on Wolverine. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's really impressive considering some of your academic background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it felt like once I realized that, I'm like, okay, well, we gotta, we kind of have to, we've done other X-Men. We've done an episode on storm and an episode on nightcrawler and an mm -hmm. episode on uh, the X-Men in general, I think was one of our very first episodes. We talked some about the astonishing X-Men run, but I don't, I don't think we, we focused on a particular character for that one. Um, but somehow Wolverine has not been covered and he is uh, one of the, the most iconic of, of the X-Men characters that has mm -hmm. reached out of the niche world of comic book readers into mainstream popular culture consciousness. So definitely one that we needed to tackle. Yeah, I, I think what we've got here for, for me personally is the the most Wolverine comic ever written. You know what I mean? Like this, th this is definitive. Th this is a story that's all about who Wolverine is. Uh, and, and like intersects with so many kind of ongoing Wolverine themes that have since been picked up by like every writer to touch him. Um, yeah. I also think this is like Claremont's 
most contained story maybe that he's ever written. Uh, you can pick this one up off the street and you don't have to have read anything X-Men or Wolverine before and you're going to get the core of it uh, and all the important pieces of it. And that's not something Claremont is famous for. No, he is most iconic for the soap opera long-running storylines where the subplot becomes, you know, there's an A-plot for for four issues that has a long-running B-plot. And then when the A-plot wraps up, the B-plot becomes the A-plot. And he was starting to introduce the C-plot, <laughs> moves up to the B-plot. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this one is really a very self-contained issue that, like you said, captures an awful lot of the essence of Wolverine, but does it in an interesting way where it is both the extent external view of Wolverine, but we also get some of the interiority of Wolverine. Um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll tackle that uh, after we give a little plot summary. But first, some trivia. Um, Wolverine, the character, first appeared in an issue of The Incredible Hulk that was written by Len Wein and penciled by Herb Trimp when Marvel was relaunching the X-Men with mostly brand new characters in 1975. Wolverine was added to that roster, and he was not like a draw when they added him to the roster. He was just this minor side character that had kind of a good name and an intriguing design that someone said, maybe we can do something with him. So he got added in um, to, to giant size X-Men number one, which is not a reference to the size of the X-Men that appear in the comic book, but is instead a reference to the number of pages Tragically. In, the, in the comic book. Uh, surely has Marvel ever done anything where they actually make their characters giant and, and call it a giant size issue? Uh, because... They would, they would do. I'm thinking now. Yeah, I don't know if they have a <laughs> marketing opportunity. Uh, but in the '70s, in particular, they would uh, publish these what they called the giant size issues that were essentially double double content within it. And they did that to relaunch the X Men, who had been on kind of a, a publishing hiatus in terms of new stories. Uh, they were just reprinting earlier issues of ni- the 1960s run of the X Men, uh, and some of the characters were appearing uh, in in. Um, uh, other titles they might occasionally make an appearance but there's no new ongoing x-men titles so they're going to relaunch mm-hmm. it and they they introduce a whole batch of new characters and wolverine gets added to that mix um and then very shortly after giant size x-men number one which is written by len ween and drawn by dave cochran so len ween is like crossover there with incredible hulk he brings in this this character that he thought might have some promise over into the x-men then chris claremont is going to take over writing duties on the x-men and he, you can tell he has things to say about wolverine <laughs> he has drawn mm-hmm. this character and uh, spent significant time adding deeper characterization and kind of thematic heft to who Wolverine was. You could tell that he really dove into that particular character of the new of the new X Men, and he also like so many of these X-Men become iconic. So these new ones that and a lot of it is the characterization that Claremont is giving them. Uh, so Nightcrawler, Storm um uh colossus like all these characters are are really receiving a lot of who we think of them as characters from chris claremont but it does seem like there's a special love for wolverine and he's eventually going to be spun off into miniseries and then long-running solo titles and then he's going to be the joke is going to become that wolverine is on every team in the marvel universe because (laughs) yeah uh, (laughs) he is uh it's marketing he's very popular and so when he shows up on the avengers the avengers show better uh you know sell better he's gonna he's gonna for an issue appear as a member of the fantastic four uh he's gonna appear in multiple of the x-men teams even though the initial pitch is that each team is distinct then Wolverine just kind of ends up on all of them. Uh, And if you try and work out how in the world this character, uh, you know, lives any, you know, day to day, nothing makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Wolverine's mutant powers include three bone claws that can pop from the, his knuckles in each hand and then also a healing factor. Uh, his bones have had metal grafted onto them called adamantium, one of the great uh, imaginary uh, elements that exist in storytelling. And then um, also just a note, the speed and extent of his healing factor is going to vary greatly <laughs> depending on the writer and story needs. And this story has for me my favorite kind of Wolverine healing factor um, where he is going to be able to recover, but it takes some time and he's kind of out of it while he is healing. Um, mm-hmm. There's some stories where like, he's basically flayed of all flesh and is still fighting and just, you know, conscious and just, you know, it's coming, it's coming in and three panels later, he's fully healed. <laughs> yeah. um, in this issue, we also have Katie power who was a new character in Marvel comics at the time. She was part of a group of siblings who gained superpowers and they were in a title called power pack. Uh, she was first introduced in power pack. Number one written by Louise Simonson, uh, fondly known as Wheezy uh, and drawn by June Brigman. Uh, she uses the codename Energizer. She has energy manipulation powers that, as far as I have ever been able to tell, are vaguely defined. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she has the title Energizer, and the, the writers get to do whatever they want with energy. <laughs> um, and Katie Power, as it, it's interesting, like that title never really took off the way I think Marvel wanted it to, but she's a character mm. that still floats through the Marvel Universe to the, to the present day. Uh, writers seem to love to pick up members of the Power Pack and. Uh, you know, and, and have them interact with the larger Marvel universe. At the time of this issue, she's supposed to be five years old. She's the classic <laughs> five-year-old. Um, but uh, in mod- modern Marvel comics, she's a teenager now, I believe. Which makes no sense when you compare it to <laughs> some of the other characters that she's interacting with who have not aged, uh, you know, more than a decade. <laughs> but that's the, the sliding time scale of Marvel time. Yeah, I always think of Power Pack as as Marvel's second attempt at New Mutants because they kind of wanted like a like a young X Men, mm-hmm. and Claremont gave it to them. But it's like the most horrific existential horror ever created in comics. So they're like, "What if maybe five year old sister?" Um. Uh, the villain in this uh, issue is Lady Deathstrike, who believes that Wolverine stole her father's research because her father was working on a process to bond adamantium <laughs> metal onto bones. And I just have a question as to, like, what is the scientific <laughs> process? Intellectual property dispute as your, your supervillain yes, origin story. But also, did she think her father was a good guy? <laughs> his, his, his big scientific process is basically body horror. Yeah. Um, she had appeared in two issues of Alpha Flight before appearing in this comic book. And in this issue, we see in the opening panels, she is transforming herself into a supervillain as um, they go to uh, um, a, a vaguely defined villain named Spiral, who is this woman with multiple arms. But other than that, I will just say everything about her to this day remains loosely defined, uh, mm-hmm. but is going to uh, give her cybernetic upgrades that are um she's the way she gets drawn she's more machine than human uh after this process and she's also going to have cole reese and macon who are three thugs from like 100 (laughs) issues ago yep (laughs) that that fought wolverine had been sliced up and chris claremont never lets a character that was named go to waste so he brings (laughs) them back in this issue and they are going to receive cybernetic upgrades, though they all insist that once they kill Wolverine, they want these cybernetic upgrades removed from them so they can be fully human again. And uh, the spiral is just kind of vague about, yeah, yeah, I'll do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, in in uh, other media, Lady Deathstrike appeared in X2, X-Men United, not really as a motivated villain, just kind of as someone who was there. Uh, yeah. Wolverine has showed up in so many solo films and team films and is next going to be appearing in the third Deadpool movie, assuming the actor's strike ends and that resumes production. Mm-hmm. Uh, any trivia that you want to add about any aspect of these characters or this particular issue? Oh, um, maybe on the subject of um, Wolverine, there's this sort of longstanding theory uh, amongst comics readers that, that John Byrne loved Wolverine. Uh, and the other illustrators maybe didn't like him that much. But we actually um, studied that in terms of trying to identify who was drawing Wolverine the most. And Byrne was up there, but like Cockrum drew him quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there's not the sort of skew effect that I think a lot of people talk about. Wolverine was always kind of interesting to a, a lot of the um, illustrators who were working on X-Men. I think maybe the connective tissue there really is Claremont. Yeah, that's interesting. I assume because John Byrne is Canadian and and he's going to go on and like really try and shepherd Alpha Flight as a Canadian superhero team in Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. He definitely seems to have an affinity for the Canadian characters, and Wolverine is uh, the only you know the only Canadian character on this team. So it makes sense to maybe uh, suspect that there might be some some greater affinity there. Um, but it it does get to be a little tricky when you're trying to nail down <laughs> these. Yeah. But then, kind of counterintuitively, Claremont really wanted to kill Wolverine, like on multiple occasions, and not because he hated the character, as you said, he clearly loved the character, but he wanted to give him a tragic death, yeah, just because he thought it would resonate, right? But like, there's there's accounts of at least three times during Claremont's sixteen year run, I'm um, including towards the end of it when his plan was to kill Logan, uh, and ed- editorial was like, no. <laughs> yeah this is our golden goose right now right? yeah exactly. he's he's a multimedia franchise star they just knew the fans loved this character and uh claremont uh, is going to write multiple wolverine miniseries um mm-hmm. with him and and you can tell uh, that he really does like this character but even in those miniseries there is this air of tragedy that he just keeps layering on wolverine and if you're writing tragedy there's only one way that's supposed to end yeah and if you look at um um, x-men volume two uh, the first three issues that claremont wrote it is kind of funny because claremont built a a wolverine is gonna die arc for like conservatively 20 issues of uncanny x-men and then x-men volume two number one no he's just better (laughs) that's it no explanation he's just he's fine now yes don't worry about it I, I, this is what the, the vagaries of analyzing superhero comic books, which both <laughs> you and I do for uh, professional reasons and then also fan reasons. But yeah. literally, there are hundreds and at this point, thousands of creators that are involved in telling these long running stories. And it's not always like you're saying, just the writer and the artist. It's the editor is. Often, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, in, in control as to what the writer can and can't do. And editors change, and then the you know the new editor may have a different perspective uh, on those things. Uh, but when we're talking about characters that for uh, Wolverine is uh, you know been around for uh, over fifty years now, there have to be a thousand people that have had a hand in telling Wolverine's official canon stories in Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and so we do see some really interesting ebbs and flows, and and uh, you know different takes on the character, and even different like. Uh, interpretations of his power set <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh for a while it, it's clear that claremont thought 
uh, the claws were <laughs> added when the, you know, well, first it seems like he thinks they're just part of his gloves. And he's like, no, no, they're in his skin. Uh, but then <laughs> it, they were added when all these experiments were done on him. But then later on, they're like, no, no, they're bone claws. That's part of his mutant powers was that he had the claws that the, the adamantium was grafted onto. Um, and, but then, like I said, with the, the healing factor, you get wildly different uses of the healing factor from era to era and, and title to title. Yeah, maybe maybe one of the easiest examples of power creep. Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, because in these early Claremont issues, like if he gets cut up in a fight, he's like, uh, "I got to sit over here for fifteen minutes." You guys try. <laughs> he's winded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to the summary of this issue, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading, and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts. Those are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we're not yet co- that we've been consuming that we're not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now on to the summary, which narrative-wise is pretty light, uh, but I think there's actually mm-hmm. quite a bit to dig into uh, with this. So Lady Deathstrike and three Hellfire Club guards, again, just think like low-level thugs, basically, uh, <laughs> have been turned into cyborgs by a mysterious woman named Spiral. Uh, Wade, Angelo, and uh, Murray are the, uh, no, uh, make it, I said Murray here, It's that has to be an autocorrect, because it's uh, Megan, uh, Cole, Cole Reese, <laughs> or no, wait, those are some first names in there. I'm just going to give a fresh read on this. <laughs> I was like, wait, did I get the wrong names in there? It's first names there. All right. Lady Deathstrike and three Hellfire Guards have been turned into cyborgs by a mysterious woman named Spiral. Uh, the three guards plan to kill Wolverine and then have their cybernetic parts removed uh, and become human again. And that's a theme that we're going to see in this issue is like this idea mm-hmm. of experimentation and monstrosity and humanity. Spiral's cryptic about whether or not she actually will return anyone to a human state. There's a blizzard in downtown New York. And Katie Powers is out with her babysitter doing holiday shopping when she sees strange blasts that cause a panic. and She gets separated from her sitter. She then encounters a wounded Wolverine. And this is uh, like the, the way that this we switched our point of view to Katie Powers, this five year old girl. And the Wolverine that she runs into is monstrous. Like he is his his uniform is all torn up. He's bleeding. He's he's a mess. And he's not in a state uh, but because of his wounds and probably being drugged. I think there's a reference to him being drugged in this, uh, but also his healing power at this point is kind of overpowering his conscious state uh, that he can, he can't really communicate with her very well. Uh, but um, there's more shooting and Wolverine's going to pick her up and shield her with his body and run. So he's still taking care of her, even in this uh, more feral state. Uh, Wolverine collapses. Katie sees the cyborg searching for him, so she tries to get him out of there. Uh, he's groggy uh, as his healing factor is working on his wounds. She hails a cab, and they get into it, but then Lady Deathstrike attacks. Wolverine throws Katie and the cab driver out of the vehicle when it gets shot and explodes. Katie's wor- worried that Wolverine is dead, but he comes out of the flaming wreckage and grabs her as more attacks come. Uh, they end up at a construction site. Classic, <laughs> classic location for a mm-hmm. superhero battle. Uh, when you said like so many tropes are present in this, just I, I almost laughed when I was like, oh, right, <laughs> construction site. It's got to be there. <laughs> Wolverine recognizes Katie uh, as one of the power pack uh, and thanks her for helping him get enough time to heal. But now he wants her to hide and cover her eyes because what he's about to do is not going to be very pretty. Now that he's healed, he makes pretty quick work out of the three goons uh, and he has a brawling fight with Lady Deathstrike. He wins this fight, but is shocked uh, that she would give up her humanity to become the cybernetic monster. 
She asks him to kill her, but he just walks away. Uh, Wolverine finds Katie and asks if she's still scared of him. She says a little, and Wolverine says <laughs> he'll be her friend if she ever needs someone to run to. And she says he has a friend too. And then they walk into the snowstorm to go get her home. The end. So narratively, <laughs> pretty simple that uh, bad guys get new set of powers and want to go fight Wolverine. We're going to shift our point of view to this child onlooker who sees Wolverine win the fight. <laughs> and that's the end yeah. of the issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first thing I want to mention, though, is Barry Windsor Smith's art. Yes. How would you describe Windsor Smith's art for anyone who's never seen it? Um, the word that comes to my mind most sort of viscerally is organic. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Uh, his use of line and shape just, just feels very kind of natural. Everything looks almost cellular um, in a way that is really interesting, but especially interesting for this particular story, which is all about, as we said, humanity uh, to some degree, but also like a lot of like body horror elements uh, in the injuries that Wolverine suffers and the way that those are visually represented, not as heroic sort of badges of victory, but as, um, objects of terror yeah when i think of barry windsor smith's art and it's because he he drew what was for a a long time the definitive origin of wolverine getting his adamantium skeleton and being experienced mm-hmm. with weapon x i just think of all the wires and cables yeah uh, that's it draws um just flowing everywhere uh and in this issue though I, we get some of that in the uh in the cybernetic supervillains we get we get a lot of those. And also on the cover, we see Wolverine with lots of cables, uh, you know. And yeah. Like, and the contrast there too, right? Between the sort of bio, I don't want to say bioorganic because then I'm leaning into Claremont's language. Uh, <laughs> the sort of biomech element uh, of that juxtaposition of, you know, exposed, soft, round flesh uh, and these these very aggressive, straight, almost algorithmic lines. Yeah. But in this issue, the other thing I want to highlight is the way he draws weather. Barry Windsor Smith's like snowstorm. Yes. It feels different than any other comic book artist snowstorm uh, that I've seen. And it feels like the weather's living uh, in a way. Um, I I think of Barry Windsor Smith in the X-Men. I always think of him with Wolverine. But it, it, seeing this one, I'm like, oh, I wish he'd, he'd done like a more like storm, like just really mastering, you know, <laughs> the, yeah, the totally. uh, because there's something so like I stop and look at the snowflakes that he draws, yeah. which aren't like individual snowflakes. It's these clumps of snow that are in the air, but the way he draws them whipping around Wolverine uh, as he's fighting. Um, and again, making some of the distinctions between the soft organic snow and uh, like the, in some of these panels, it's like energy blasts coming from these cyborgs uh, that yeah. are, you know, there with the snow. And I think it's uh, this deliberate contrast of organic and, and mechanical and cybernetic that we get in this. Yeah, and the the blood against the snow too. Now this is this is CCA era, so blood is black in order to be uh-huh. somehow less offensive. But yeah, <laughs> but, but but even so, again, that stark contrast of, of like this sort of um pathetic fallacy symbol of like purity and innocence um being you know stained by this violence is is really interesting to me visually. And I, I I've said this before, and people have said it's sacrilege, but I do really wish they'd recolor this at some point and just just let let this thing be like bright crimson blood masses on the snow yeah uh you you mentioned the cca which is the comics code authority um which was the self-censoring editorial board uh, i was surprised uh as lady deathstrike gets all her cybernetic stuff she does stand up and we see her rear end which i was like oh i didn't think a 1984 yeah. was gonna have that 
But uh, I guess to counterpoint, Wolverine's entire uniform is destroyed except for his speedo, uh, yes. which is made of better material, apparently. Yeah. Yes, and it, and his and, and his weird winged <laughs> boots that like mirror his style. I think it's like one boot, though, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it's not symmetrical. It's awesome. It's so good. I, yeah, uh, superhero speedos. Uh, <laughs> no matter how bad the fight is, uh, that that will be maintained. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, so we've talked some about the art story wise. What do you want to dig into first? I think there's so many interesting things, both um, for this particular self-contained story about Wolverine, but then also how this maps onto like our larger narrative of who Wolverine is as a character that's present within here. So is there anything that you want to highlight first? Uh, yeah, I, I think, and you've already touched on this, but I, I think one of the things that's really remarkable about the story is just how, perfectly balanced it is in terms of the symbolism that it's constructing so on the one hand you have these reavers uh, cole reese and macon who who can't forgive and forget right who can't let it go uh, and they're on a destructive path clearly symbolized by their choice to destroy themselves as established in the opening scene um death strike is a further extreme of that very obviously she she is the least capable of letting it go uh, and is sort of a, a rival for Wolverine as kind of an equal. And then on the opposite side of the villains, you have Katie Powers, who is this I mean, perfect symbol of um, childhood innocence. She's kind of everything Wolverine isn't, but also everything Wolverine wants to be, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of um, youthful, feminine, again, innocent, um, all of that material. So you've got Wolverine kind of choosing between two paths, uh, and it's not a simple, like, which one do you want to choose? Like, say, Lone Wolf and Cub. Do you want to pick up the sword or the ball? Uh, in this one, it's very much a Wolverine has to participate in the violence that he detests in order to protect the innocence of Katie Power. And that's who Wolverine is. He doesn't want to be the murder machine, but he has to because he's really good at being the murder machine and he can protect people that way. Yeah, he is... Um a definitive example of the outsider hero who is going to protect innocence and civilization Mm -hmm. from savagery by using the tools of savagery for this moral reason, right? Now I'm going to use violence for a morally justified reason in this case, protecting a child. Um, And Wolverine has, he can't belong to civilization. He doesn't quite fit in, right? He's always going to be on the outskirts and the edge, but he's always going to be protecting civilization, usually represented by women and children uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) from the, the violent, outskirt of, of of savagery and there's even uh this monologue that he gives at the end so i'm just gonna read it yeah, yeah. classic claremont here uh, <laughs> uh katie says what happened did you uh meaning did you kill them and he says i won't lie katie girl there's a part of me as wild and fierce as my namesake i'm a hard man given to hard ways when i fight it's to win that isn't pretty and it sure isn't nice but being a man that means choosing to grow and change and put aside the old ways some people can't or worse won't do that. And Katie asks like that lady and, and her creeps. And Wolverine says, yep. And Katie just says, that's sad. <laughs> but like yeah. impl- implicit within, uh, you know, all this is like, I am trying to change and grow now because of the nature of serialized superhero comic storytelling, which is uh, what Umberto Eco called like the illusion of change. Like we're going to progress, but then we always have to reset to that familiar uh, Wolverine's never going to be able to fully change. And that's part of the tragedy uh, of this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like he he has this goal of being better than what he is. Like he, he And we're given in flashbacks to know that he was worse than what he is now. Like he has definitely chosen a better path 
and is not the feral savage <laughs> that, that he once was. Uh, but we also know he's never actually going to fully reach the goal that he's stating right here. Yeah. And what I think is fascinating in this issue in particular, but maybe in some of the, the Wolverine mythology in general, um, if you're familiar with the Greek concept of the Aristia, which is like the, um, the the glorious battle, essentially, if you want something analogous from contemporary media, think an action scene in a movie. And like, if you sell me a fast action scene, <laughs> yeah, if you sell me a Fast and Furious movie and there's no car chase in it, I want my money back, right? Yeah. Uh, the the narrative builds towards that, uh, and in, for the ancient Greeks, that was not um, selling out or anything. That was considered part of the artistry. So Wolverine is this character who's got these really cool claws and he looks really tough and he's got all these muscles and he has a healing factor. So there's all these implicit promises made to the reader that you're going to get to see, you know, gory wounds and, and this violent eruption and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he's going to you know, win and stab people and all that kind of thing. But what makes him so fascinating to me is that when he does that, it's not just a moment of glory. It's also a tragedy because it's a setback for him in his personal growth as a character. And that duality to me is really deeply compelling. Um, and, and I think Wounded Wolf is maybe the best example of that. So I um, way back when I was working on my master's degree uh, and <laughs> I was the first person in this master's program who was going to write something about superhero comics um, yeah. in, in this English lit program. <laughs> And I turned my master's thesis. I'm in my defense, and I still remember getting this question from one member of my, my thesis committee. I was like, "Why is Wolverine so popular and so cool?" I'm like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> That's awesome. Why is Wolverine fun? And, and so then I I start with like, well, I talked about the outsider hero that I just talked about, um, you know, uh, and he's like, "No, why is Wolverine so cool?" I'm like, um, and so then I'm like, "Okay, uh, well, he's kind of, he's he's the he's on." He's the fringe of the fringe, right? So, so the X Men as a group are this like fringe of society, and he's even on the fringe of that. And he's like, "No, Joe, it's because of the claws." I'm like, really? You expect <laughs> me in my uh, academic <laughs> to, to say it's because of Warren's claws? But uh, I, I think, like you just described, that violence uh, is part of something that is definitely core to Wolverine's popularity that, uh, you know, both, like you said, the, the promise to the reader uh, that there's going to be this glorious battle that's present within the text, but also if it's being handled well and a writer's investing in the emotional beats of the story, there's a price that's being paid for that violence and the clause as both a visual element for a superhero character, like a design element for an artist to yeah, be able to draw yeah. But then also as like a symbolic representation of the price of violence, where like he has to pop them through his own skin to right. this violence. I think my, the 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 answer the you know the member of my community was looking for was not wrong. <laughs> I just wasn't gonna like just go say his claws. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think in, in the extreme, and not always because I don't think it always pulls us off. But maybe in Wounded Wolf it does. The, the, one of the ways that it becomes such a compelling duality is because it specifically implicates the reader in that choice, right? Like, I have to ask myself, what do I want to happen in the climax of this story? Do I want Wolverine to um, unleash the beast, so to speak? Or do I want Wolverine to make the, the nobler choice, the choice that's in his best interest psychologically and emotionally? What part of the comic do I care about? the violent spectacle or the emotional connections that I've forged with the character. And honestly, like to this day, I don't know. <laughs> I think the answer is both. And that's a really 
I don't know, weird place to put me in mentally because I'm I'm not Wolverine. The only thing I have in common with him is that I'm Canadian. <laughs> and uh, like even just in our discussion, it's like, OK, well, we've got to talk about this issue. Well, we have to talk about the Barry Windsor art, uh, which so much of it is that spectacle that you're talking about is yeah. like really taking in with that. But then the next thing we talk about is like, well, look at this Claremont monologue written at the end of this issue where, <laughs> where there's so much more than just violence for the sake of violence. Uh, that's happening uh, in this. And again, like like we said, like there's thousands of creators that have worked on Wolverine, literally thousands of issues that Wolverine has appeared in. Not yeah. All of them are going to be doing what this one is doing. Many of them are just going to revel in violence for the sake of violence. Um, but uh, I myself am drawn to and resonate more with ones like this issue, Wounded Wolf, where uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's giving you both and also leaving you a little bit troubled, <laughs> you know? I, yeah, totally. That's a great way to put it. I, I think we see that, especially in um, that one element of the climax where Deathstrike says, you know, I, I know how this works. You won, kill me. And he doesn't just say no, he says, earn it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That It's just devastating to think about that and what that, that means that this glorious battle she fought that she thought was the ultimate attestment to her courage uh wasn't that at all that in wolverine's perception it's the opposite of that and what he's doing with katie is earning it yeah um i guess while we're on that point i think one thing that chris claremont did very well and again the best superhero comics are able to do is that you're going to learn about your protagonist because of the enemies that they are fighting Mm -hmm. uh and that whether we're talking about Batman and his rogues gallery who often are like highlighting and exaggerating uh, aspects of the Batman, Batman's character, you know, whether it's the duality of Bruce Wayne and Batman with two face uh, or like the, the borderline psychosis it would take to do what he does with, with Joker. <laughs> like, like pushing all of these aspects of Batman's character further, or like the, the businessman side of Bruce Wayne with, with the penguin, you know, all the, yep. all these uh, other sides of it um, that, in battling these enemies, the reader's able to learn more about the character. And I think that's something that Claremont took care with, uh, with the X-Men and particularly with Wolverine. Like he made Wolverine his own personal rogues gallery while he was writing the X-Men, um, mm-hmm. which most characters did not get. Uh, so with Wolverine, you get Sabretooth, uh, you get like mm-hmm. Deathstrike, you get Silver Samurai, you get, uh, you know, lots of different characters uh, that are all going to be, you know, highlighting whether it's uh, honor or savagery. Um, what do you think, we're getting with Lady Deathstrike specifically. Like what, what is Claremont trying to push the reader mm-hmm. to be more aware of by making this one of Wolverine's singing, you know, like, like someone who's focused exclusively on Wolverine, not like Magneto versus all of the X-Men, you know, or the brother of yeah. versus all the X-Men, but these are distinctly Wolverine enemies. Well, I, yeah, I, I think again, this is the sort of symbolic balance and this is where Cole Reese and Macon come in. Deathstrike is specifically a commentary on the cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think, um, Cole Reese and Macon are there to remind us that Wolverine's violence has a cost. Uh, and that cost is kind of blood, right? The idea yeah. that you hurt people, then they're going to come back and hurt people too. Uh, and as a result of that, I mean, how do you break that cycle of violence? Except by, you know, resorting to nonviolent means, which maybe comes back to the earned element. Um, but as I said, Deathstrike is sort of a, a more extreme incarnation of, of that. Um, issue with Cole Reese and Macon and therefore Wolverine having, I would say the good sense to stop it is, is maybe intuitive, but again, he kind of loses himself a little bit. The, the scene where he defeats 
death strike in battle is extremely violent uh, and windsor smith does an amazing job in particular of illustrating logan's face uh and the sort of um, um feral bloodlust that's overtaking him uh, and we see that in other um issues or sorry other panels in the issue as well uh, so you yeah, know I, I i think it's this idea of how violence haunts which which is a major theme in claremont we'll see it come up extensively in magneto's character arc which is being developed right about this exact same time we, we've already seen it extensively with rogue uh exploring the long-term consequences of her actions with people like carol danvers in avengers annual 10 and all that kind of stuff um yeah so i i think death strike is about the fact that violence has this this long-standing cost yeah and um i think we also do get this parallel with her uh non-mutant powers but like her her cybernetic upgrades get treated like her own healing power and she says mm-hmm. I, I i did this to become your equal and uh wolverine uh talks about like well like all the experiences that were done on me, that wasn't my choice. Why, how could you choose to do this to yourself? Yeah. Uh, and he says like, you, you've given up your humanity, which is make, meant to make us realize that Wolverine views himself as less than human, right? You know, that he, mm-hmm. everything that he's been through in his history, all the experiments that were done to him have made him feel monstrous. Uh, and he, he's trying to process in like, like right after this, this brutal battle, you know, he says, um, well, let me find it real quick. He says, uh, let's see. Uh, my healing factor makes me a mutant, lacing my bones with adamantium and giving me these claws. That was done to me. So there's another clue that at this point he's, well, Chris Claremont hasn't decided that these are bone claws that were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says, but you <laughs> asked to be changed. You did this to yourself. Threw away humanity. I'd give pretty near anything to possess. And I think yep. Claremont at this point, when you know, that idea of the claws being added to Wolverine, with what he's doing, that makes more sense right now than to say that the claws were right. his, his mutant skeleton, right? Because Wolverine is saying, like, I was turned into a weapon by by, by these experiments that were done to me. Um, yeah, yeah, he's been instrumentalized, right? Uh, and he resents it. But I think that's one of the really cool dynamics, too, because not only does Deathstrike have this strong motivation for hating Wolverine, but Wolverine has a really strong motivation for hating her as well, because mm-hmm. she had everything that he wants and she gave it away. Uh, and, um, this idea of Wolverine feeling like his humanity was taken from him and he's trying to earn it back compared to Lady, uh, Deathstrike choosing to give up her humanity to exact revenge on Wolverine. That's where we get some, you know, that, that thematic parallelism <laughs> between yeah. these characters where their relationship matters more than, you know, random supervillain with a really cool power set and an awesome costume that someone drew uh you know it's the some time is being taken uh and the way that barry windsor smith draws lady death strike at the end when like her body is falling apart Mm -hmm. essentially it is like haunting (laughs) i guess yeah it's all i can say and and i think we're supposed to process this as like her body is healing it's going to take time but like these cybernetics are going to self-heal but she looks like her body is is uh like unraveling almost yeah i think if you connect that back to the cycle of violence element um the real way maybe that that wolverine breaks the cycle isn't in any interaction with her it's in his interaction with katie powers who is a young woman who in this comic is being subjected and being exposed to horrific violence 
right? Yeah. Uh, someone who has the potential to, I don't know, go on a revenge binge against Deathstrike 30 years from now. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it could continue. But the story is about Wolverine not just saving Katie from the violence, um, but specifically insulating her from it. Uh, and, 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 you know, please don't look. Please don't be like this. Please don't fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's really important as well in terms of the parallelism between Katie and Lady Deathstrike. And I think that that raises um, one thing that definitely stood out to me in re- coming back and rereading this. Um, this is an issue that came out when I was two years old. Uh, so I don't think I actually <laughs> like was able to get my hands on it to read it until I was working on my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> and that's the wow. first time I've read it. Uh, and, you know, I've read it, I've, re- I've read it a few times uh, in, you know, since then for academic reasons and, and other things, and then revisiting it for this. But when we mentioned early on that this becomes kind of like an emblematic or iconic Wolverine story, because it has beats of what we associate with the character. I was like, Oh, this is another Wolverine with a young female sidekick that he's taking under his wing. And somehow in all the times they've done this, they've always been so careful to never make it creepy that Wolverine is mm-hmm. taking on these young female sidekicks, which uh, the first one that we really get is, is Kitty pride that he has a bond with. And there'll be a mini series about Wolverine and Kitty pride having an adventure. Uh, and now we here, we get Katie powers. We're going to see it with Jubilee. We're going to see it with armor. Uh, it, it's a trope that is used frequently with Wolverine and, and positioning the character to almost a paternalistic role mm-hmm. um, with very often fairly newly introduced characters into the Marvel universe uh, that, that Wolverine is going to have this pseudo mentor role, but it's not like a, um, you know, like a training mentor <laughs> necessarily. It's more like uh, we, we get thrust into adventures together and I'm always there to take care of you kind of, kind of paternalistic relationship. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think um, you've got on sort of the one hand, the obvious foil effect uh, and just how much more old and cynical and tired and capable, like, like we just go down the list of like every single quality of Wolverine, um, how those things become much more apparent when contrasted with this, this young female, um, um, I don't know, 2D, uh, <laughs> what do we want to call it? Uh, someone who's being mentored. Um, so that adds a lot to it. But then uh, again, I, I think one of the things that's really cool about most of Wolverine's relationships is the extent to which the people he interacts with want to be him and he doesn't want them to, he wants to be them. Right. You bring this back to like Nightcrawler, exact same relationship. So I, I think there's this constant sort of reemphasis of um, using these young characters to define who Wolverine is usually very quickly and immediately, but also again, leaning into that problematic journey for him of he's teaching them how to be violent. Like if you look at the Kitty Pride miniseries, he is so depressed that, that, that Kitty is becoming a ninja. You know what I mean? Uh, he, he laments it, but he also guides her through it, teaches her how to control it, uh, and therefore maybe again potentially breaks the cycle. And we see that thread with Jubilee. We see that thread, thread with Armor and a little bit with Katie Powers as well. Yeah. And uh, Wolverine as a character, he is definitely... Uh, the storytellers are borrowing tropes from both Westerns and samurai stories very often. Yes. Explicitly. Wolverine puts on a cowboy hat and rides a motorcycle off to the sunset. Very often. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and uh, even though he's on in every team, he's always riding off from the team uh, at the end. And often it's in a cowboy hat. Uh, and 
especially under Claremont, he explicitly has uh, samurai adventures, uh, you know, in Japan, <laughs> ninja trading, you know, uh, so many tropes of that. Um, but this idea of the worn out, cynical older man who has some young protege that he has to have one last adventure with is definitely present, you know, in True Grit uh, yep. or, or uh, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub. Like, like it is the a, Mandalorian. Yes, <laughs> it is definitely something that we see. Uh, yeah, that's another one that's barring both these characters. <laughs> the, 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 the <laughs> yep, characters, very much so. Uh, uh, Western and, and Samurai uh, for, for Mandalorian. And you could definitely just transpose Wolverine and Mandalorian in a lot of ways. And I think there's a reason uh, that uh, fandom embraces those those characters. Yeah, this is actually something I write about in the, um, the book, in the chapter on Wolverine, um, looking at how he transitions from um, this cowboy figure to the samurai figure uh, that I think most of us know him as and what the consequences of that are and how that aligns with some of the like um, um, ideological elements in play in like 1970s and 1980s America mm-hmm. uh, and in particular transitions in masculinity from excuse me, transitions in masculinity from this like symbol of freedom associated with the cowboy, uh, you know, sort of rebellious freedom to symbols of um, heroic nobility uh, and almost like the glory of servitude, which is another theme for Wolverine, right? Again, when we talked about how his violence becomes a little more heroic uh, when it has a sense of purpose. You you know, the the, the, the tragic uh, aspect that I think we get, uh, and it's present in many cowboy stories, but it's definitely feels like in the Western media that we get of samurai stories, there's an element of, of uh, tragedy that it feels, uh, you know, uh, intrinsic to, to again, Western consumed samurai stories. Yes, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Saying, I understand. Because I don't know <laughs> how much we're, we're, you know, what, what's happening in the process of translation for a lot of these stories <laughs> that we get. But uh, Claremont is, has all been very open about the stories that he's consuming inspire the stories that he tells. Um, yeah, I, Mariko Yoshida, um, who is Wolverine's um, love during during Claremont's era, everybody thinks he loved Jean Grey. That was like for 10 issues, maybe. But anyway, Mariko Yoshida is his true love. Mariko comes straight from James Clavell's Shogun. Like that's where the name comes from. It's it's not subtle. That's, that's like the definitive um, novel in terms of uh, the American or Western uh, fascination with Bushido culture specifically. Um, Are there any other elements that you feel like this story encapsulates as far as like our wider uh, versions of Wolverine or, or the, the larger interpretations of Wolverine that we all consume? Cause I'm guessing most people, if they were asked to describe Wolverine, they would describe something that's pretty similar to the character we get in this story, but they've never read this story, right? It's, it's just the iterations of Wolverine that go sprawling out from here. Writers are picking up on a lot of these threads, but is there anything else that you think this story captures particularly well that is emblematic of Wolverine? Yeah, I, I think maybe we've touched on it already, but I, I think one of the the big things associated with Wolverine is the idea of the berserker rage, mm-hmm. uh, which is sometimes awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, in this particular story, you have a good iteration of it because we start in media res, you don't know what happened to Wolverine. He's just in a rage. He's in an animalistic state. The nudity enhances that a little bit. Um, and as you already mentioned, like the idea that he, he literally can't talk. Um, and one of the things that's kind of fascinating to me is he actually says two things in Japanese to Katie because like his, his brain is repairing itself and his, his language core doesn't have English yet, I guess. Um, and the two things he says, uh, I forget the exact word. I think it's Boku Wadare. 
and then a variation on that and the sort of transition if you translate it and the translation is not given in the book by the way um is something like um who am i what am i and i love that that's like frankenstein's monster and i i think that inherent tragedy of a human being who's afraid of losing control that's so deeply relatable to all of us in, in like like any facet of our lives um so the, again this almost like freudian um id versus superego thing playing out and how heroically and desperately he's trying to hold on to that well and i think we forget now because marvel has given us multiple versions including what they call their definitive or you know origins of wolverine but at this mm-hmm. point we didn't even know wolverine's name we didn't know if he knew his own name uh you know he, he goes by logan first name last name don't know is that really is it don't know <laughs> um you know he's, he's just logan and wolverine and uh the explanation that i remember that they kind of seem to have gone away with is that uh his healing factor actually was protecting himself from his own memories and like overwrote those oh god yeah yeah which i thought was great touch i think they kind of go moved away from that but <laughs> i really liked that one as like oh and then that just makes the character an enigma like what actually is his past and you can throw in characters that have a history with him that he literally doesn't remember which is such a great narrative tool uh but there, he was a man of mystery now we've gotten like there's a whole film called wolverine origin that kind of tracks through the official comic book origin it's not a great film uh but like we know he's no. really was james Hallett and he was a little boy in canada and you know he was born in this year and in some ways i wish it would have been left in the like this level of mystery that we have so when he's saying like who am i what am i you you're you said it's Frankensteinian. That's literally what we had. There was a Frankenstein monster of a character who we knew had been experimented on and had right. come forward into the world and did not know what his place in the world was. Um, and uh, that like going back and reading old comics, we're like, Oh, right. We, we literally didn't know. And, and writers would just leave little hints and like supervillains would say something to Wolverine about his past. And it would become like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, I can't kill you. Cause I need to know what you know about me. <laughs> I don't know about me anymore. Uh, I think that was a really uh, excellent aspect of the character. Now I understand, like I said, the character has been around for, you know, since is it 1974, the first issue in Incred- Incredible Hulk. Uh, that sounds right to me since since 1974 75 was giant size x-men of course the they're going to tell his origins at some point but for decades they did keep it this vague mystery you know and he was this man of mystery and i think uh it was like early 2000s they finally did like wolverine origin where they wrote Mm -hmm. the original origin of wolverine that says you know what his real name was james hallett (laughs) this Uh, is why he likes redheads yes uh (laughs) but i I remember the one reason they did it and this is something that we've seen with other comic media is they knew uh there were adaptations coming like he was proving to be popular in film and they didn't want the filmmakers to tell us wolverine's origin that became the origin so they're like no like he's a comic book character this is we need to be the ones to to tell his origin story right um, and that fear of the media adaptations like overtaking comics is responsible for any number of weird choices that have happened <laughs> throughout uh, yeah. the, the uh, publishing history of these characters. I, it's so like, it really is a fascinating aspect of like these long form storytelling where it's not, you know, there's so many creators that are involved, but there's also all these business concerns that are involved. And there's all these, uh, you know, this network of pressures that are actually influencing what story is being told. It's not, you know, the author alone trying to write you know a story there's just so much uh in in these network of influences around superhero comic books yeah i I think with claremont's wolverine in particular i I think he had a lot of control and a lot of clout 
Um, oh, he and, would do it where if Wolverine was going to be in a miniseries, he was going to explain why he wasn't in X-Men comics for, you know, for the next six issues. Yeah, it, it was really tight. But, but as you said, even then... It's completely gone now. <laughs> yeah, it, you kind of can't do that anymore, particularly with your most valuable intellectual property. We're, we're in a state of like um, uh, the character being fixed, not being allowed to change, commitment to status quo, um, all of that. I, I mean, the greatest creative direction that the X-Men franchise has received, arguably in the last 20 years, was, is the Hickman run, mm-hmm. uh, where they, they let him blow it up. And it sounds like we're going back to status quo. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, that Umberto Eco illusion of change in popular yeah. storytelling. The uh, theater of scheme, I think he calls it. Yeah, we we, must, we we will progress, but then always reset back to the familiar. Yeah, it's sad. But it's always interesting, too, like, uh, those progressions, often, like, some aspect of it, even when it resets, like, some, something about that does often stick. And, like, we do, our familiar is, is changed a little bit. <laughs> it's just not, yeah. not the full. I had it just... I had it described to me once as contrapuntal patterning, which is like a musical term, mm-hmm. uh, where when you have something that is kind of repetitious, the slightest variation becomes much more meaningful. If uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so when you do, you know, oh, they're going to go back to the expansion and blah, blah, blah. Okay. But how, <laughs> you know what I mean? And the slightest variation takes on a greater significance. I do find that interesting. Yeah, Definitely. Uh, well, Andrew, do you have any final thoughts on this issue that you want to make sure we touch on? I really like it. People should read it because it's, it's again, accessible. Um, and if you're confused reading it, cause you didn't have the previous issue, you're actually right where people who did have the previous issue were, cause none of this stuff was explained beforehand. Uh, it just throws you right into the middle of a, a really beautiful character exploration that also has cyborgs and explosions and claws. And really fantastic snow-strewn streets of New York at Christmas time. Yeah, it's the perfect holiday comic. It's the Die Hard of X Men. <laughs> I okay. Well, there are other comics that are literally the Die Hard of X Men. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. With Wolverine in them. <laughs> yeah, calling yeah. up from a basement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I read this on um, the Marvel Unlimited app, which when we talk about Marvel Comics, after we just mentioned that it is, if you're interested in reading comics, that is a great little gateway where for mm-hmm. 10 bucks, you have a month of access to tens of thousands of Marvel comics. Uh, the entire run of X-Men comics is, uh, you know, up through like six years there uh, on the Marvel Unlimited app. Uh, but it's also, uh, this is in numerous collections that have been put out of Wolverine stories or of Chris Buckley's X-Men stories. So it's uh, very accessible to be able to find now, which still blows my mind because when I started reading, I just grabbed a random X-Men comic and it's like, here we go. I will never, <laughs> what came before? I will never understand this. I'm just jumping in from this starting point. Uh, <laughs> forward. And if I miss an issue, uh, well, hopefully they give me a recap at some point of what I missed. Now it's just all so accessible. Yeah, totally. It's a different um, world. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Well, Andrew, thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed this discussion of Wolverine. And uh, once again, uh, I knew we needed to talk about an X-Men comic uh, because you have this book out. Can you give us one more plug of the Claremont run? Sure. Uh, so it's from um, University of Texas Press, but it's available everywhere. It's called the Claremont run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men. And it's more or less an exploration of um, how Claremont complicated the concept of gender binaries in comics. 
including through characters like Wolverine and Jean Grey and Cyclops and Nightcrawler and Havoc and Psylocke and Dazzler. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. And Andrew, I, I guess I should also ask, do you have any podcasts you want to plug? So met no, just kidding. Uh, no, I'm on, I'm gosh golly wow, uh, with with, with um, um our mutual friends Christopher Maverick and Anna Papard, uh, and um I have a public facing scholarship on social media called Sequential Scholars with Anna Papard that you can check out if you want sort of um, every other day getting a little bit of comics analysis. And I always appreciate that analysis because it's something. Uh, I can consume without having to say like, okay, I'm saying this journal article or anything like that. It's like, oh, look at that. And I made an insight and I think about something differently than I did before. Yeah, I like to think we're dumbing down comic scholarship. It's great. I I, I think you're making it incredible. (laughs) 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 Well, uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. You know, whether we're talking about Batman and his rogues gallery or um, 